my recent interview with author Justin Gesso about his book, Leave the Grind Behind, we had an opportunity to explore the factors that allowed him to transform his life. Justin wrote, Leave the Grind Behind to help people that are dealing with the fears of becoming an entrepreneur. He provides the reader with tips, tools, free quizzes, and a template to assist you, the listener, in learning ways to navigate leaving your job easier. Please join me and author Justin Gesso for podcast interview 596. I hope you enjoy our interview together. Thank you. And now our host, Greg Voison. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. Um, I always thank my listeners, Tom, because without them, there'd be no show. And I do have such a faithful group of people that follow me more and more coming all the time. It's always a pleasure. So for all of you who are out there listening and have been sending the word around about Inside Personal Growth, thank you. And we have a new World Library author on with us who's written a book called Fully Engaged, Using the Practicing Mind in Daily Life. He's also the author of another book called The Practicing Mind, and his name is Tom Sterner. And good day to you, Tom. How are you? Good day, Greg. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And, you know, Tom uh, can be reached at Tom Sterner. That's S-T-E-R-N-E-R dot com. You can reach him there. And he's got, as I said, an additional book called The Practicing Mind. But we're going to be talking with him today about his new book that's just recently released in October. Um, And this book is Fully Engaged. Tom, I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you. Tom is the founder and CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute. Uh, As a successful entrepreneur, he's considered an expert on present moment functioning, or PMFTM. He is a popular and in-demand speaker who works with high-performance individuals, including athletes, industry groups, and individuals, helping them to operate effectively with high-stress situations so that they can break through to new levels of mastery. Uh, prior to founding Practicing Mind Institute, he serves as the chief concert piano technician for a major performing arts center, preparing instruments for the most demanding performances. During his 25-year tenure as a high-level technician, he personally worked with industry giants such as Pavarotti, uh, Andre Watts, Ray Charles, Fleetwood Mac, Bonnie Raitt, Tony Bennett, and Winona. Uh, an accomplished magician himself and composer. He's worked in the visual arts and a recording studio engineer. He lives in Wilmington, Delaware, where he enjoys spending time with his two daughters and his recording studio. So when you go to his website, check him out sitting at his recording studio. So, Tom, this is an interesting book. And I think in our times today, you know, people move at such a rapid pace. I know we're all you know, seems like even though the time clock is an illusion, it seems to have grips with most people. And you stress in the book that as the pace of society is hastened, you know, we're losing sight of being present. And while we all understand that the being present is important, what's your definition and how do you recommend people practice mindfulness and presence to be able to reduce their stress and be more available? Well, I think it's important to say that we're 
not only losing the idea of being present, we're losing the ability to be present. I mean, this is one of the things that some of these studies are showing is that uh, the parts of our brain that handle hyperthinking are, are developing based on what we're asking the brain to do. But at the same time, the part of our brain that we would use to be focused and still, like in other words, to concentrate on something for any length of time, that part of our brain is more or less atrophying. And that's the reason why it's so important that we we pay attention to this and and try to counteract that. It's, 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 I think it's particularly important with young people because the, uh, the people in, you know, say over 30, uh, grew up in a time where there wasn't necessarily cell phones. There were not that many channels on the television. I mean, we were just constantly bombarded by the media and everything that happens today. Or we've, we've, we're connected to the media through our cell phones and computers and televisions. And so they have access to us, and they're constantly stirring our minds with uh, thoughts and uh, through advertisement. So our minds just keep getting ramped up more and more. The work days are longer. There's all sorts of things that are, as you said, are creating this hyper thought culture. And uh, what I tell people is you have to, you, you really can't change anything. Anything that we would talk about today regarding this subject, you have no control over unless you develop an awareness of your thoughts. And, and what I mean by that is that you are not your thoughts. You are the one that experiences your thoughts. And your mind produces thoughts all day long. This has certainly been studied. And some of those thoughts you initiate through your intention, uh, but most of the thoughts are initiated by your mind. Our minds are problem-solving machines, and if we don't give it a problem to solve, it will go looking for one. So it's constantly, uh, it's constantly being distracted. And, and what we need to do is be able to separate ourselves to create that gap uh, between us and our thoughts so that we do not become absorbed in the emotions that our thoughts create. And that's what stress is. I mean, if you ask somebody, if you didn't think, could you experience stress? Then the, well, the answer is no, because thought is the vehicle for stress. You have a thought, and the thought creates an emotional response, and you experience that emotion. So if you can learn to be aware of what your mind is doing, then you give yourself the opportunity to make a choice as to whether you want to allow that or not. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do that, but if you don't have the choice, you, you're really not even in the game. So I tell people it's mm -hmm. very important that they practice uh, some form of thought awareness training. Now, you can call it meditation. It's just a label, but whether it's a breath-based session or a mantra-based session where you sit quietly and comfortably and close your eyes so you don't have visual distractions and... Um, and physical distractions, meaning you want to be comfortable in the position you're in so your foot doesn't go to sleep or something like that. I generally tell people don't lay down because it, it can promote, you can get become so relaxed that you become drowsy and you want to stay alert. But you want to just spend some you know, 10 to 15 minutes a day watching your thoughts in this quietness. And if you uh, are focusing on your breath and just watching yourself breathe, uh, what will happen, either one, whether it's a mantra based, you're saying a two or three word mantra over and over again, and the words don't really matter as far as I'm concerned for what we're talking about here. It's just to give your mind a, a single uh, task to work on. What you'll experience is that very quickly into the process, your mind will take off and you won't know that it's taken off. You'll just be with it for the ride. And 
you'll wake up mm-hmm. uh, at some point and realize that your mind is taking you to the grocery store or to something at work that needs to get done or something you're worrying about. It's all stuff that is not where you're at right now. It's in the future. It's in the past. And you just wake up and notice that and you pull it back. And that's to whatever the task is, watching your breath or saying your mantra. And that's really... It's such a simple thing that is so incredibly powerful, and we've studied it's been around for thousands of years through Eastern thought, but it's also been studied thoroughly and documented through our Western empirical science studies. And what it does is it creates this separation. It creates this noticer of our thoughts, this, uh, this observer of our thoughts. And when you have mm-hmm. that, then you have the option of making a decision, is this thought serving my happiness? Is my, is my mind's activity serving my happiness? And then you can develop strategies for making it work for you. Well, it's interesting. I know m- most of my listeners know this, but you know, I've been a longtime devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda and SRF. We have a, a temple here close. And you know, I've been meditating for a long time. And even somebody who's a longtime meditator and into Kriya Yoga and all of these basic things. Um, th- this never is been easy for me. Now, I don't know for all of you listening, but the reality is this does take your time. And I think the most important thing is just finding the time. You know, and Tom, as our society is increasing, you look at these CEOs, like you work in companies, you go in and you coach and you do workshops and things, you find that the level of ADD and ADHD amongst CEOs and top management people is just, it's crazy. But you also state that when our awareness increases, so does our productivity. What do you do or what do you recommend to these CEOs and people that are hyperactive, most of them, um, to control the monkey mind, as we call it? Well, as you know, the, the the very first thing that they have to do is to practice this thought awareness because, as I said, if they don't have an awareness, then they're just a puppet of whatever their mind is doing. And so they don't really have a choice yeah. in where their mind is going. And so they're, they're – in fact, this whole thing about ADD – now, I'm not – I'm certainly not invalidating some clinical situations with that, but, you know, I experience – periods where I feel like I'm ADD because of all the stimulus that's around me. And I just had a conversation with um, an insurance agent the other day who said that she's experiencing this uh, ADD. But if you look at her at her desk, she's doing 20 things at one time. She's never really doing one thing. Uh, her mind is never still. And that's the point that I was making early on is you have to recognize the environment is creating this and that the uh, the thought awareness training is something that that gives you an ally um, to work against it. It gives you a skill to develop that will allow you to escape that. So what do, you, what do you recommend that they do to their environment? I think for my listeners here, look, the value is going to be in, hey, Tom, what do I change? Because look, I'm sitting here in front of you. I've got a computer. I've got all kinds of stuff around me because we are constantly acquiring more stuff. It's like the next shiny object that, you know, comes along. And that internal uh, ego that's saying, go get this device because it's going to make you better. Or it's going to make you more fast. You know, the, the reality is we all have to deal with that. How do you get people to, to, to quench the thirst, to stop that insatiable appetite? 
Well, I think that's a really great question, and I feel like it's a paradigm that is shifting in the corporate world because the present paradigm is failing. Um, and what I mean by that is um, there's a story in The Practicing Mind about how in the 1970s there was a, a U.S. archery coach who said that they couldn't compete against the Asians at that time. And the reason was because the American team was totally focused on bullseyes, getting bullseyes, and the Asian team was totally focused on the process of drawing the bow and letting the arrow go uh, in correct form. And so when the Asians would go through that, their whole mind was on what they were doing right now, and they were only doing one thing. And because of that, the bullseye just got in the way of the arrow. Uh, the Americans, it was like the only reason they drew the bow was so they could let the arrow go and see if they got a bullseye. And they're very different perspectives. And uh, the one was very attached to the goal, and the other was very attached to the process of achieving the goal. And the, mm -hmm. as it came out, the now if you look at all of those sports, whether it's golf, and this, is, this stuff has all come out through sports, but now it's migrating into the corporate world, is that the whole reason that you participate in this, the reason you change the environment, you have to sit down with the employees and, and stop giving them 20 things to do and accept the fact that their productivity is going up if you allow them to work on one thing at a time. And I think that's really the shift that has to happen. It has to be acceptable uh, from the top end. And I have seen this. You know, I had a conversation. Somebody asked uh, me to do a, a, if I it was someone that I had worked with they had seen me in a, a workshop and then I had worked with them individually and then they had asked me if I would do a, a speaking thing at this corporate conference that they were going to have and they asked me to speak with the head of the, the corporation and I could tell very uh, within 30 seconds of the conversation that this guy was not going to accept he was completely bottom line oriented. And what are you going to do? What are you going to say that's going to make me more money in the next quarter? And that you know, right. you have to be willing to say, let's 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 change our paradigm here and go in this direction. And what will happen is the companies that don't do that will begin to fall behind if they're not already doing it. I mean, if you look at golf, let me ask you this. Let let me ask you this, and I want to. I don't like to interrupt, but as my mind goes to this, it says. You know, that CEO, that person at the top, has so many stakeholders that are dependent on him. Let's just use a, a, a silly example, but it's probably a good example. You know, Wells Fargo's falling apart, C minus rating now. It, you know, lots of bad things happen, right? People made wrong judgments, right, about how they did things. But with this greed, to continually move forward and this strong power from above to say you Mr. CEO have 15 different stakeholders and everybody wants a piece of your ass how does a guy like that put his foot down and say look we're going to focus on it I'm just I'm asking a question because it's tough to balance between the two well, I think – I don't know that there's anything that guy is going to do, to be honest with you. I think what's going to change it 
is the whole environment is going to shift. And that's why I was going to give you the example of the golf. If you look at back in the 1970s, you know, when or ni- 1960s, when Jack Nicholas came on the scene, he was way ahead of his time with his whole mindset because he was very process-oriented. He had a pre-shot routine where he'd visualize the shot. Nobody was doing those things. He was really out there. And I would imagine that some people thought – that he was annoying because he took too much time. Now, everybody knows he's the greatest golfer in history. I mean, he still has more wins, uh, major tournaments and everything than Tiger Woods. But the point is, is that at that time, sports psychology didn't exist. Present, working in the present, all that stuff that now is absolutely critical to be competitive in sports. You have to have it. You're not competitive if you don't have it. So what happened was it started there and then what it began to grow and then people began to realize, just like the archers in the 1970s, that you can't compete against these people that are functioning in the present moment. If, if you want to be in the same arena with them, you have to adapt this strategy. And I personally feel that the only thing that is going to overcome this greed drive that is what you're describing there is the feeling that, well, if we shift over to this paradigm, we will make more money, which is what they're after. And the benefit will be that the the um, the employees will be healthier mentally and physically. Everybody will win from that. But it will take the, the, the people that are on the on the top, they have to accept it. Otherwise, they won't allow it to begin to, you know, to occur in the corporations. And I I think from what I've seen, it is happening. There are some corporations that are adopting it and they're looking at it. And for example, um, a number of years ago, I got asked to do a uh, a book signing up in New York and to do a working lunch with a uh, capital investment firm. And on the way up, I ended up uh, sitting next to a guy on the train. And as it turned out, he uh, it was a real synchronistic thing. He was he was going to New York from Arlington, Virginia, and he was one of the things he was doing was discussing stuff that was in the practicing mind. I mean, it was really strange that we ended up sitting next to each other on the train. But what he told me was not really. Well, no, it <laughs> isn't really. Not- not really. It it it's it's divine intervention that way. You know, it does work that way. Well, but what was so interesting? I, I, what what was interesting about it was the fact that the only seat that was left on the train when I got on was the one next to him, and we didn't talk mm-hmm. for two hours. We, we it was only about ten minutes out of New York that we ended up talking. But but the point is is that what he said was that his company had realized that they couldn't squeeze any more blood out of a stone. They were long past the point of diminishing returns with their current management model of their employees, that their employees were stressing out. Mm -hmm. They were taking that stress home, which was creating stress at home. They were bringing that stress was piled on what they went home with, and they were bringing that back the next day, and it was this downward spiraling cycle. So they had recognized that they needed a new model. They just didn't know what it was. So what they were trying to do was find out what, what do we know, what's out there through these empirical studies of how to make people the most productive and at the same time not stress them and burn them out. And they were using a number of books, and The Practicing Mind was one of them they, as in their research. But my point is, see, it's already starting because this company had already understood – they had a satellite in New York, which was the reason he was going up there. But they had already realized that we have to change. Something has to change if we're going to continue mm-hmm. to be – um, competitive. So now, if you look at that, his company changes. Now, what's the company that's competing in with him, with him going to do? As their company, as his company starts to accelerate, they're going to have to do something to stay up with them. And that's why I'm saying it's going to take that sort of an environment, in my opinion, 
to change the um, what this model that has been around for so long, this multitasking which doesn't really exist, constantly you know giving less people more work to do so that it shows more income on the top, and all these types of things are dead end streets, and uh, you know it creates dissension in, well, the, in I, the company. I, I understand that it's it's so many factors that you have to deal with, Tom, and I always look at it, is it the chicken or the egg because. There's a couple of things going on in here inside a company in particular, but it's also with inside our souls. And it's this one, it's the ego soul dynamic um, that, that I see that's very important. You know, what is it that's driving that behavior? And then what is it that we can do to calm the mind? I mean, you talk about the interpretation of the moment to affect our awareness. It really is about creating awareness, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's the number one yeah. thing, right? But it's also about the values that a corporation has that align with those employees. So there isn't, um, as we call it, disengaged employees. They're saying right now today that you know we're looking at sixty percent or more of the employees are disengaged because of the kind of environments that you're just now speaking about, right? They're not motivated to really want to get involved with these companies. They're just there to get a paycheck, right? And so that company has to grow from the inside out. Um, so talk with us, if you would, about what you do when you come into these companies, maybe to help bring this awareness of, of many of these issues that we're talking about. Well, I, I, I talk to them about what we've learned you know, through the studies because some people, that's the only way they, they can buy into it is if they see that th these things have been, have been shown to operate uh, in a way that is better. I mean, they, they obviously have to be in a place where they feel like, well, we need a new way of thinking. Other, otherwise, I wouldn't be there. And so they're receptive about – um, talking to them about the stuff that we're talking about here. I mean, you you see things like uh, meditation rooms in in some of these corporations. You know, where they uh, they have found that you know if they if the employees have some place where they can go to quiet their mind, that they get more productivity out of them. So that's one of the things that I would recommend if I was in a, when I'm in a situation like that. You've got to give the employees a certain amount of time during the day where they have a chance to slow their mind down. You also have to let mm -hmm. go of this multitasking thing and the. Corporations are doing that because the the studies out there that are showing that you know it's no longer called multitasking; it's called switch tasking. And they found that um, what happens is is that your brain has to stop and start, and it does it you know trillions of times, and you're exhausted. Uh, and this is they found that um, there's a there's a book out by a guy named Dave Crenshaw, which is called The Myth of Multitasking. It's been out for quite some time, but um, you know what he talks about in there is that they have found that this this whole concept of multitasking which doesn't exist this switch tasking that they now know it is can erode a person's performance by 25 to 35%. So if they stop like once again there's hard numbers there that show that. So you know that's what the people need in the upper management everybody has to be on board and I, that's why you're right it has to come from the inside out. If if um and I just think that because it's th this thing is driven by greed, and it's driven by a sense of everybody has this sense of feeling incomplete. And 
we we all participate in this. I, I think that the 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 feeling of incompleteness is grossly misinterpreted. The feeling is there as part of our spiritual DNA to make us want to grow, to make us want to expand as individuals, and that's the reason why we have this all this amazing art, like the Sistine Chapel and all the inventions and science and all these things, music, all these things have come about by this desire to have more, to grow, and to expand. But it can be when it's misinterpreted into a I'm incomplete, I can't be happy in this moment until I acquire this other thing or I get to this this new thing here, this new place. That's when it begins to create this misery and it almost creates this addiction to, uh, to you know to get more, which drives the people and everybody participates in it. I mean, you've got this guy wants more money so he can buy more stuff and he has people working underneath of him. So he pushes them in a way that's not healthy for them so he can get more money and the whole thing just keeps perpetuating itself. I think we're right. it's very clear that we're in a, a, a transitional state where we're learning that this this is completely it's completely a, a folly that is um it does not produce there's it's a cycle that we participate in over and over again at every level i mean at one level it's the guy wants a new smartphone and another level the guy wants a two and a half million dollar yacht but it's all this it's the same cycle that's going on and you know we're beginning but to i think we're God, yeah i think, <laughs> I think we're beginning God to realize people that like yourself yeah and and what i was going to say tom is that there's so many authors and studies and science around this today. Uh, you know, I just recently did this uh, interview with Cal Newport. His is called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. I got another one co coming up called uh, The Distracted Mind, right? And so we're seeing so much of this. It's been coming. It's been there for a while. But thank God for people like you who are creating the awareness inside these companies. Now, you have created a chapter dedicated to setting goals, and you say setting them with accurate data so we stop sabotaging our confidence. So what data do we need? If there, I'm talking to a whole group of people out there right now who set goals. They're probably goal setters. They're probably high achievers. Um, and, and goal setting is really, really an interesting thing. Um, I just did an interview with foremost expert on goal setting and task accomplishment or task performance. What data do we need to set realistic goals and not get attached to the outcome? Well, goals are important. I mean, if we don't have goals, we don't have a direction to expend our energy. But I think that so I think the first thing we have to understand is initially when we choose a goal, we have to realize and, and accept that we may not be able to have all the data at that point to know how long it should take to accomplish something. I think that that's very important. I mean, I certainly experienced that in my own life and my own, um, some of my own ventures. So the data, you know, it, I, I can't give you a formula for the data because it depends on, you know, do you want to be a better musician or do you want to build a business? I mean, there's different data for the, the different scenarios, but I think that the first thing is to realize is that you have to get as much data as you can in terms of um, what what hard data is available for that particular thing, whatever it is that you're trying to grow. So, for example, if you say, well, you know, I, I've got this company, it's making um, – $800,000 a year, I want the company to grow to where it's making $5 million a year. Well, how much data can you get your hands on there? And, and can you know all the data? Because what ends up happening is, is you start making um, 
we, we could that's interacting with the thing about getting attached to the goal okay now you know what the goal is so absorb yourself in the process of achieving the goal and don't be so attached to the goal itself because in that process of achieving the goals that's where you, things begin to become ever-changing you you're getting more information every day and so what you may have thought was the right path on the, in the first six months you may find out this no this isn't the right path I have to go in this direction here and that's what I think is you that's what you have to understand I think that's the most important thing to understand because if you make – the point I was trying to make in that chapter is – and this is an analogy I, I've used only because people can get it so easily – is if you make a goal and you say, I want to lose 20 pounds and that should take me 10 days you know, because you don't have enough information about how the body works and, and um, how long it should take to exercise to lose that. Well, when I say that, 10, you know, 20 pounds in 10 days, everybody that's listening says, well, that's an absurdity. You're not going to do that uh, unless you go on a fasting diet and where you don't eat anything and then, then you're near death. Well, that's what I'm talking about there. What ends up happening is if you started judging your progress based on a timeline of of 10 days, you're going to be judging your confidence, your, your ability to complete the goal, your decision to uh, take on the goal in the first place. All these things are going to be impacted by this the completely erroneous data, even though you may be progressing in weight loss in a very accelerated rate. You may be going through an exercise program, a nutrition program. You've gathered all that data, and you're doing everything correctly, but your initial feeling about how long it should take to, uh, to finish the, the task is completely wrong. And so it's not that you're not mm-hmm. performing well. It's just that your your information was incorrect in the beginning. And I, that's what I think is important is to understand that you may not be able to have – you can go out there and research other companies that have done this thing that you're trying to do. You can try to get as much information as you can, but you should always have in your mind that this may be an evolving process. And if it is, that's normal and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And that's great. What you just told my listening audience is, is really, really great advice. I mean, you know, when you, when you think about it, a lot of times we go into a lot of different projects in our life that are relatively half-baked, and we wonder why we end up with, you know, uh, challenges or we're thwarted in some way as a result of it. And, and it's not that we went to per analysis by paralysis here. It's that, that we didn't always have all the data we needed. But sometimes that data comes in along the way. And that brings me to my next question, because... You know, when we're dealing with our family and our wives and our coworkers and everything else, we're bound to come across some confrontation. We're bound to come across some resistance. And you state that our awareness increases. When our awareness increases, we have more control over confrontational situations. Can you explain to my listening audience what happens when our awareness increases and we have more control over our emotions? Well, the first thing that happens is that we're separate from the emotions, and um, we, because uh, it's the difference between having a thought and being in the thought. It's a difference between noticing an emotion and being absorbed in the emotion. So, what happens, you know, for me is I tell people it's very important if you look at procedures. You know, procedures are a wonderful device for changing your habitual response to a stressful situation. I mean, when you have a situation that you know, whether it's in your family or at work, that you know um, you don't perform well in, what you can do is you can take time when you're not in that situation and make decisions on how you would, if you could handle that situation in any way that you wanted, 
How would that be? If you're not, if you don't do that outside of the situation, you're not going to be able to do it when you're in the situation because there's too much emotional content. So what you want to do is is create that idea of this is if I could behave any way I want in this particular situation, what would it be? And then you make a plan. And I even recommend that people practice this in their mind. Sit in a chair, try to feel the emotions that you will feel in that situation and then react in this this procedure that you have created. It's amazing what happens is, uh, for me, I almost use it as a game. The, the situation itself is the trigger. So it, let's just take an example of it's a particular person that's very difficult, and when they walk in the room, that's the trigger. Here they come. And for me, when I get in those situations, you know, what I say to myself is, um, okay, Tom, game on. Show me what you got. I, I watch me nail this situation. And that puts me completely outside of the emotion of the situation of being in a reactive mode. I'm Now I'm in control of what my mind is doing and what my mind is thinking and how my mind is reacting. And it really gives me a power of the pull that is there when this person becomes uh, problematic with their behavior because I'm not sucked into it so easily because I'm already expecting it. It's really like... You know, if, if you walk into a dark room, if I tell you, look, you're going to walk into that dark room, you're going to take five steps, one, two, three, four, five. On the fifth step, somebody's going to poke you on the back of your shoulder and say, boo. If you know that, it loses all of its power when you walk in there. It's the difference between walking in there un, unaware and having it happen and walking in with a full knowledge that, okay, here's my fifth step. Now you're waiting for it to happen, and it, it loses its power, and that's really what I tell people. You can change your interpretation, your experience of stressful situations depending on how you prepare for them, and uh, and you should also understand that when you feel yourself struggling, if there's a situation that you're struggling, you can turn that around, your interpretation of it, and realize that the reason it feels that way is because you're in a state of mastering the process of dealing with that situation. The stuff that you can do easily is stuff that you've already mastered. So there are some situations that you people around you might struggle with, but you don't find them upsetting or uncomfortable. That's because you've mastered that situation. But when you find yourself struggling in a situation, that's because you're in a process of learning how to master that situation. And if you change your point of view so that you're looking at it like that instead of looking at that as I'm not any good at this or this is just making me uncomfortable, the uncomfortable feeling, that's just a label. We say this feeling is uncomfortable. This this feeling is uh, anxiety. That It's a label for a sensation that we have. And we can interpret that situation in different ways. And based on how we interpret it, determines how we experience it well it's i tell my listeners and they've heard me say this before you know are you on the goal line or the learning line and i think what you've just uh, expressed to our listeners is you know if you take these situations as learning opportunities versus oh man i just have to get through this i just want to reach you know i want to get to the end of this versus how do i change my interpretation of the situation such that I can alter the outcome of how I feel and how the other person feels. Then you're actually headed in the right direction. Then you can repeat that process. You know what to do next time when something comes up and you can register that in your subconscious and go, okay, I've been here before. I know how to react. And I think you've given some really, really sound advice for that, Tom. And actually, I want to invite you back to be on the show again. We'll talk about the practicing mind. Um, But if you would, tell my listeners 
One, we know that they can reach you through TomSterner.com, and we'll put a link up to there on that. Uh, you also have another website, is the Practicing Mind. Is that correct? The Practicing Mind and the Practicing Mind Institute. The Practicing Mind site was the original site that was put up when the Practicing Mind book came out almost five years ago, I guess, four and, um, four, over four and a half years ago. And that site has everything about that book. Uh, but there are leads to that site if you go on to TomSterner.com. You can read about the book and then okay. you can find out more on there. The Institute site I created, the I formed the Institute because after I wrote The Practicing Mind, I was I really underestimated the impact it was going to have, and everybody was contacting me and saying, you know, we want more, we want to talk about this more, we want to hear more about this. So I created the Institute site to be a place to, to, to create a community, and we actually have some online courses that are on their way, and we're trying to get them done as quickly as we can. I Because Fully Engaged was being edited, and I, it just took a lot of my time. So... Uh, we've right. gotten a little behind on that, but that's not abnormal, and I don't stress over it. It's just the situation. So, um, but right. they can find out. You know, going to TomSterner.com, they can they can certainly contact me if they want to talk to me. They can if they think that I would be um, a value coaching them. They can set up a free fifteen minute call. Everything is pretty much accessible through there. Great. Well, for my listeners, just so you know, again, just go to TomSterner.com. We'll put a link in the blog entry. Um, we've been on today with uh, Tom joining us from Wilmington, Delaware. And the book that he recently uh, released through New World Library is called Fully Engaged, Using the Practicing Mind in Daily Life. You also can get this, and there will be a link to Amazon to be able to purchase the book. Tom, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes of your time. Uh, letting my listeners know about not only your book, but some of the practices, some of the things that they can do to alter and make their lives better, make them more aware, and have them function in this crazy world just a little bit better. Thanks for being on. Oh, thank you, Greg, and thank you for all your work, too. It's very valuable. I appreciate it. 